I realize that the preaching of the word plays such a vital role in the corporate gathering of God's people, but never underestimate the power of singing. The Bible says we're filled with the Spirit. We teach and admonish. We encourage and build up one another as we sing the life-giving truth of God's Word. So I thank our music team, and I thank you, the congregation, that as you sing with melody in your hearts to the Lord, you are building up one another in Christ. Let's continue to do that as we open God's Word to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, it's on page 781 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 26. We're wrapping up a two-part series that became a three-part series that hopefully will not become a four-part series on the ordinances of the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. See, Brother Reed Ferguson sitting to my left over there, and I want to thank you, Brother, for that marvelous message you brought to us last week from Proverbs 30. Seven master principles for life. And uh, if you were not here um, to hear that message, I hope that you'll go on our website and listen to it. Uh, In that chapter, Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Every word of God proves true. Isn't that great? Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who place their refuge in Him, those who trust in Him. In baptism, the initiating ordinance of the church is a beautiful picture of that reality. Uh, the, The Word of God, the written Word, points to the living Word who is Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But when we put our faith in Jesus, what a friend we have in Him. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with us to the end. And baptism is a a beautiful picture of our union by faith in Christ, in His death and burial and resurrection. Our union is so secure That Paul says in Galatians 3.27, saying this to believers, you were baptized into Christ. This spiritual baptism, which is symbolized outwardly through water baptism, unifies all believers. It's a picture of our unity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit, you all, talking about believers, were baptized into one body, the body of Christ. So baptism is the initiating ordinance whereby the believer goes public with his faith and upon that profession becomes part of Christ's body, the the visible church. From that point on, the baptized believer is to participate in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, which represent the body and blood of the Lord. What comes to mind when you think about the Lord's Supper? or communion, as it is sometimes called. When our kids were quite young, one of our boys got upset during the communion service one Sunday, saying that he didn't understand why everybody else got a snack, and he didn't. (laughs) See, back in his nursery days, he was accustomed to enjoying crackers and juice, and so he figured that as the crackers and as the juice were dispersed in big people church, so to speak, Um, that this was sort of the adult version of a church time snack. Now, I hope no one here today (laughs) views the uh, 
communion packets as an adult church time snack. My guess is that none of you do. But adults can be guilty of misunderstanding and even misappropriating the Lord's Supper. Or even if we have a right understanding of it, we can fail to enter into its full significance. So my prayers that our time in God's Word today would help us in that regard, that it would increase our understanding regarding the significance of the Lord's Supper, and it would also, as a result of that, enhance our celebration of it, even today as we culminate our time of worship by participating in the bread and the cup in honor of our Savior. As the Lord Jesus ate the Passover meal with His disciples, on the eve of His crucifixion, He instituted the Lord's Supper. Beginning in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 26, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Passover was the oldest of Jewish festivals. It celebrated the people's liberation from slavery in Egypt. But this God-ordained institution pointed to an even greater deliverance that was to come, the ultimate deliverance from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians 1, saying, God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So before trusting in Christ, we were enslaved to sin, and we were subject to God's righteous wrath on account of our sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. How did Jesus do this? The story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, whether it's, it's pointing to Christ in advance or describing His earthly ministry as He was here or expounding on that ministry once He ascended back to the Father, all point to the fact that He became a man. The Son of God became a son of men, that the sons of men might become sons of God. Jesus, by becoming a man, became our human substitute, living the perfect life of obedience in our stead. He died on the cross to take the punishment that every single one of us deserve on account of our sin. And then he showed that the Father had accepted his sacrifice on behalf of all who believe in him by rising victoriously from the grave three days later. And then he ascended to the Father in heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God in faith through him. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 verse 15, only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives in slaves to the fear of God. Of dying. Are you afraid of dying? You don't have to be. 
Jesus overcame sin and death for every single person who trusts in him. So that we don't have to live in fear of death or of anything else. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So on the eve of his crucifixion, as Jesus anticipated his death and what it would accomplish for all who would believe in him, he celebrated the Passover and he instituted at that same meal the Lord's Supper. The essential elements, the, the bread and the wine, were already on the table. But Jesus wrapped them in new meaning. He blessed the bread and he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, now Jesus' body was there at the table right with them. It, he had not yet suffered and died on the cross. And so clearly he was not referring to the bread as his physical body, but it was a symbol of his body. Likewise, the cup, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As the apostle Paul recounted this account in the life of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit brought this to his mind, he recorded Jesus as saying in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Previously, when God made a covenant with the people of Israel, he ratified that covenant with the blood of animals. God was teaching his people that reconciliation always comes at the price of blood. It requires death. Because, as the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 9, verse 22 of his epistle, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. The problem with the blood of animals, bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews says, is they could never take away sins. They at best could provide a temporary covering for it, like a bandage over a festering wound. But these sacrifices did something else. They pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that God would provide, a sacrifice that would settle the problem of sin once and for all. And John the Baptist pointed to the solution, God's solution once for all, when he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus ratified the new covenant by which God would fully forgive his people. God would reconcile them fully to himself. God, in fact, would put his own spirit in them so that they would have a new heart that would desire to please and obey God. The Old Testament prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel foretold of this. And Jesus brought it into effect by his own blood. And this is the reality. The reality of the new covenant that we celebrate at the Lord's table. So let's talk about the essence of the Lord's Supper. What is it at its very heart? Well, according to scripture, we could sum it up this way. And this is a long statement, but I hope you'll write it down. The Lord's Supper is a thankful remembrance of Christ and his death symbolized by the bread and cup that nourishes us spiritually, brings us into communion with God and with one another, 
and fills us with joyful anticipation of the glory to come. That's a mouthful, I understand. But let's break it down a little bit into the salient points. Number one, and primarily, the Lord's Supper is a thankful remembrance of Christ and His death. Do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. The bread symbolizes his body that was sacrificed for us. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And before Jesus distributed the bread and the cup, we are told that he gave thanks. The Greek term is eucharisteo, from which we get the word Eucharist. And so communion or the Lord's Supper is sometimes called the Eucharist because it is a ceremony of gratitude for what Jesus purchased for us by his death. We are forgiven. We are reconciled to God. We are adopted into God's family. We are given and indwelt by the very Spirit of God. We are given a new heart that desires and has the ability to obey God. And we are granted eternal life by God. Those are things to celebrate. Because life gets hard, but this life is not all that there is. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. Jesus is with me to the end. And the Bible says that in the ages to come, He will continue, God will continue to pour out His kindness, show His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It will never end the blessings of salvation. And that's why the table of communion is an occasion for celebration. It is a thankful remembrance of Christ and His death. Secondly, the Lord's Supper nourishes us spiritually. Early in our service, we read from John 6. Let me read just a few of those verses again. Where Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus is using graphic language in these verses to convey a very powerful point. But brothers and sisters, he is not advocating cannibalism. A literal eating of his flesh and blood. Jesus is talking about the spiritual nourishment that we draw from a life-giving relationship with him. When we eat literal food, what happens? It becomes part of us. It fills us. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. And the same is true of Christ when we look to him for salvation. He provides the very life of God to the believer. The spirit of life takes up residence in our life. That's what Paul meant when he testified in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. 
Yet not I, the old me, but Christ lives in me. For the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Communion is a reminder of the vital life-giving relationship we have with Christ. The Puritan minister Richard Baxter said, quote, When our souls receive him by that faith which the Holy Spirit exciteth in us, the participation is as true as that of our bodies receiving the bread and wine which represent him. End quote. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper brings us into communion with God and one another. 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation? The Greek term there is koinonia, which means sharing, communion, fellowship. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And that's why communion is sometimes called, or the Lord's Supper is sometimes called communion. It is communion with God, yes, but it is also communion with God's people, corporately. When we are united individually by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united with everyone else who is united to Christ by faith. In fact, it's important to know, as we've often read from 1 Corinthians 11, probably the most famous of all the communion passages in Scripture. The context of that passage is quite interesting when we think about this context of communion because Paul is actually, in giving his instructions, rebuking the church at Corinth because their behavior toward one another was, was contradicting the reality of the gospel and how it is represented in communion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Boy, what a reproof. Paul is saying, look, you may be eating the bread, you may be drinking the cup, you may be repeating some of Jesus' words, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. It might be some other kind of ritual, some other kind of ceremony that you're going through, but it's not the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is one of Christian communion. It's Christian fellowship. It is Christian sharing in the gospel. But your ceremony is nothing but a sham if you're mistreating each other. It is not honoring to Christ, so don't call it communion. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And that's why Paul, in the same chapter, calls every believer to self-examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. What does he mean to discern the body? Well, I think it's clear from the context in 1 Corinthians 11 that it has a double meaning. I think that's intentional on the part of Paul. 
Jesus said the, the bread represents his body, the cup represents his blood. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So the first sense is that we should think about Jesus' physical body that was sacrificed for us. Think about the soldiers beating him, spitting in his face, yanking out his beard, tearing apart his flesh with a scourge mercilessly. A scourge being more or less a a cat of nine tails with chunks of jagged pieces of metal and glass just lacerating his flesh time and time again. Think about the crown of thorns just jammed on his head as blood trickled around all sides. Picture the spikes driven into his hands and his feet for us. Picture him hoisted on the cross as people pass by mocking him, taunting him, deriding him. And then say with the ancient hymn writer, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Oh, look on me with favor and grant to me thy grace. That's what it means to discern the Lord's body and what it means for us. But there's a second way to discern the Lord's body that is vitally connected to that first sense. And that is, think about his corporate body, the church. Just as Jesus died for you, he also died for each and every brother and sister in Christ. And the church is referred to in Scripture as the body of Christ. So we cannot discern the body of the Lord rightly as physical body without thinking through the implications of our relationship with the corporate body, the church. Jesus died to reconcile us to one another. Whatever it is in a human sense that would naturally divide us, Jesus broke down that wall of hostility to bring us together. We should think about that. We should discern the significance of His body, the church, and what that means in terms of our relationships with one another. How we see each other. How we treat each other. How we talk to one another. And how we speak about one another. In these two meanings, the physical body of Christ, discerning that body and the corporate body of Christ, the church, discerning the Lord's body, these two meanings converge in Jesus' command in John 15 where He said to His disciples, this is My commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Likewise in Ephesians 5.2, Paul tells the church, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is true communion. When we walk in love the way that Jesus walks in love. That's the essence of the Lord's table. 
And fourthly, the Lord's Supper fills us with a joyful anticipation of the glory to come. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and he served them the elements of the Lord's table. Interestingly, in Luke 12, when Jesus speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb that will occur in glory in the Father's kingdom, Jesus says to his disciples concerning himself, he's speaking in the third person here, truly, truly, I say to you, he, that is Jesus, will dress himself for service and have them, his people, recline at table and he will come and serve them. What an incredible thought. John describes the marriage supper of the Lamb in in Revelation chapter 19. I would encourage you to read that. But the idea is this. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we anticipate the ultimate supper that is to come. That great celebrational feast that will occur in the Father's kingdom. The Bible teaches that if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus has a spot reserved for you at his table. And he's going to serve us throughout eternity, always providing everything we need. We will feast on him and with him forever and ever and ever. What a joy it is to anticipate this event. And therefore, what a privilege is ours to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we want to make sure we do it right, don't we? We want to honor the Lord by participating in the ordinance in the manner that He has prescribed. So to do that, there's a few key errors that must be avoided. Let me share them with you very briefly. A first error, which is a very key error, is a teaching known as transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view. It was officially proclaimed in 1215, and it literally means change of substance. Trans, change, substantiation, substance. Change of substance. It's the belief that as the priest dispenses or disperses the sacrament, carries, administers the sacrament, distributes the bread in the cup, that the bread actually becomes the literal body of Jesus. The wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. The bread still looks like bread. It feels like bread. It smells like bread. It tastes like bread. But it's the body of Christ. Roman Catholic theology teaches, and the same is true of the wine. It looks like wine. It smells like wine. It tastes like wine or the fruit of the vine, grape juice, what have you. But it's actually the blood of Christ. Furthermore, this view teaches that every time the Mass is celebrated, the sacrifice of Christ, in some sense, is actually repeated. One of their own theologians writes in Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, quote, the purpose of the sacrifice is the same in the sacrifice as the Mass as in the sacrifice of the cross. End quote. There's a couple of problems with this view. I'll give the lesser one first. One is that it fails to recognize the symbolic character of Jesus' words when he declared, this is my body, this is my blood. Jesus often used metaphors when speaking in reference to himself. On other occasions, he said, I am the true vine. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, 
he will be saved. Jesus wasn't a literal vine. He wasn't a literal door. He was speaking metaphorically to use physical objects that we could relate to to convey to us spiritual realities. But what makes the Roman Catholic view more atrocious, even heretical, is its failure to recognize the New Testament teaching regarding the finality and the completeness of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. Hebrews 9 clearly states, He did not enter heaven to offer Himself again and again, but as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many. When Jesus said, It is finished, He meant it. When we realize that Jesus paid the price for our sin once and for all when He died on the cross in our place, it assures us that we are fully and forever forgiven by God and no further sacrifice is necessary. Hallelujah! What a Savior! The second view that I'll cover quickly is a little like the first view. It's the Lutheran view called consubstantiation. Luther didn't believe that the bread became the physical body of Christ and the wine became the blood of Christ. But he did think that Jesus' body and blood were somehow present with the bread, with the cup. Hence the term consubstantiation, with the substance. The Augsburg Confession, which is the primary confession of the Lutheran Church, says in Article 10, of the supper of the Lord they teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat in the supper of the Lord. End quote. And to illustrate the Lutheran view, some have said that Christ's body is present in the bread the way that uh, water is present in a sponge. It's not the sponge, but it's in and around and under and with the sponge. I was using a sponge, ironically, twice this week, quite a bit. So that uh, impression was very firmly implanted in my head. But this view, like the Roman Catholic view, again, fails to recognize the metaphorical meaning of Jesus' words. Like in John 6 when he said, I am the bread of heaven who has come down to give life to the world. Jesus is using physical bread to explain spiritual realities. Now, some of you may have had this view either in the past or maybe you even came here today with one of those kind of views, even if you weren't sure how to express that. Maybe you didn't know the term. But I think there's a third, and I'll call it a far lesser error, that evangelical believers commit when we come to the Lord's table. And this is, this is my term. I call it the mere memorial view. The mere memorial view. It's not heretical, like the Roman Catholic view, that the bread and cup change into the body of Christ or it's not problematic like the Lutheran view that the bread and cup somehow contain the body and blood of Christ. Believers who hold the mere memorial view rightly recognize the bread and cup as symbols of Christ's body and blood. And they rightly see our observance of the Lord's table as a memorial of Jesus' death. After all, Jesus did say, do this in remembrance of me. But the problem with those who hold the mere memorial view and again, that's my term with emphasis on the word mere memorial view, 
is that they believe that their bread and cup are merely symbolic and, as one author put it, are devoid of any substantive meaning except for what one calls to mind. End quote. It's kind of like uh, I'm eating the bread. Yeah, I, I think about the body that was sacrificed for me. I think about the cup. Yeah, Jesus shed his blood for me. You know, I eat the bread and I drink the cup and I realize this, this picture is Jesus' death for me. And that's true, but they failed to lay hold of the spiritual presence of Christ with us right here, right now, gathered in his name as we participate in this ordinance. I thought of it this way. I can look at a picture of my mom, and I can think about, as I look at that physical picture, what a great mom she was, and I can think about all the wonderful things she did for me as a mom. But my mom's gone. Her, her body's buried in South Carolina and her spirit is with God in heaven. My mom, when I think on her and even when I thank God for her, is with me in no sense, either physically or spiritually. She is not here. Praise God, one day I will be with her again. Praise God, our brother Noble, his family, they will see her again because his mother too was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the body is not here with us. The spirit of the departed is not here with us. But some people treat communion. They believe that Jesus is risen. But they think, you know, that's great what he did back then for me. And now he's in heaven and someday I will go be with him. And that's true of Jesus' physical presence. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is spiritually present with his people. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. Because we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 says, do you not know, speaking to the church, that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you, dwells in you? The Bible talks about Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we must remember that while Christ is not physically present, but has ascended into heaven, Christ is spiritually present with his people as we worship him. Because Christ is always present by his spirit, we celebrate his very presence when we partake of the Lord's table. So we really do commune with Christ and with one another. And that's why I like to call, again, this is my term, I like to think of it as the dynamic memorial view. Yes, it's a memorial, but it's not a mere memorial. It is a dynamic memorial. We experience the all-empowering presence of Jesus Christ in our midst as we worship Him. The reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, described the body and blood of Christ as a spiritual feeding and said this, quote, So then when you come to the Lord's Supper to feed spiritually upon Christ and when you thank the Lord for His great favor, for the redemption whereby you are delivered from despair and for the pledge whereby you are assured of eternal salvation, when you join with your brothers in partaking of the bread and wine which are tokens of the body of Christ, then in the true sense of the word, you eat Him sacramentally. You do inwardly that which you represent outwardly, your soul being strengthened by the faith which you attest in the tokens. End quote. The Lord's Supper, it's all to say that the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus is our life. We feast on Him 
by faith. And that is how we truly live. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's think about our experience of the Lord's Supper. Our experience of the Lord's Supper takes us right back to the essence of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a thankful remembrance of Christ and His death, symbolized by the bread and cup that nourishes us spiritually, brings us into communion with God and with one another, and fills us with anticipation of the glory to come. With these thoughts in mind, I want to ask you just a few questions for consideration, for self-examination as we come to the Lord's Supper today. Number one, have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing that he died and rose again for you so that you could be forgiven, reconciled to God, adopted into his family, indwelt by his spirit, given a new heart, and have eternal life? Early in our service, Brother Larry said, if you're in the faith, we want to encourage you. And if you are not yet in the faith, we want to encourage you to embrace Christ as your Savior. Would you do that today? Number two, have you been baptized as a public profession of your faith? The Lord's Supper is the continuing ordinance of the church, but baptism is the initiating ordinance. It's where you go public with your faith, and upon your profession, you are added to the visible local church. So have you been baptized as a profession of your faith? If not, why not? Number three, which of the spiritual realities represented in the Lord's Supper is most encouraging to you in your Christian life right now? Think about the things that we've talked about this morning, the spiritual realities that are represented in the Lord's Supper, all the blessings of salvation that Jesus purchased for us by his death. Which of those do you need and appreciate most right now? Is it forgiveness of sin? Is it nourishment to strengthen you? Is it being filled with joy as you anticipate that this life is not the end of the story? There is glory awaiting us in heaven that Jesus has a spot reserved for us at his table in the kingdom of his father. All of these are realities for every single one of us who believe, but which one of these realities do you need the most right now to be reminded of? Jesus said, oh, do this in remembrance of me. I am a faithful friend. I am a wonderful savior. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, I am with you to the end. Then fourthly, are there any sins that you need to confess? Any broken relationship you need to make right as you think about the Lord's Supper being communion with Christ and with his people? Let's think about these things as we go to prayer. Father in heaven, I realize that I have but scratched the surface when we think on the significance of the Lord's Supper. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who grants us your wisdom to all who ask of him, would help us to see clearly, to perceive rightly, 
the bread and the cup and what that means for us as we feast on Christ our Savior. Father, I pray that anyone who is outside of Christ would walk through Him the door, the way that they might have eternal life. And I pray for believers, Lord, to be strengthened in their faith, strengthened in their relationships with one another, and given fresh hope as they think about the glory that awaits us. Hear our prayer, O Father, for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.